0: Hello everyone, this is Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. When I was, I'd say, maybe seven, eight years of age, I was in the car with my family. It was most likely about January or February. In the part of the world in which I live, January and February are cold months, possibly our coldest months, and should there be any precipitation that would fall, it would be in the way of snow. And I remember, pretty significant I suppose, if I remember, some 55 so years later, that in the backseat of that car... As driving with my family, as on a snowy day, I swore up and down. It was snowing in the car. And uh, might I say, I've never (laughs) come to live it down. Uh, My father is long past. My mother is up in age. My sister, equally so (laughs) to me, she probably wouldn't want me saying that, up in age, But when we get together, there's still the chance that story might come up. Why? Because I made a monumental deal about that. I was sure it was snowing in the car. And though I came to some semblance of reality a little later on and. Even so, challenged myself with some measure of introspection. And maybe even as I'm telling you the story today, there's still that part of me that looks back on that and says, how could I have gotten that so wrong? One of the reasons was I was tired, fatigued. And back then, when I was a child, I could fall into a fairly deep sleep just about anywhere. And I was sleeping. And I think I might have even stayed up late the night before for whatever odd reason. Might have been, good. <laughs> well, I know. it could have been Christmas, I don't know. All of that excitement that goes with it. But it had altered my, not only perceptions, but the conclusions I drew from those perceptions. Psychology Today, September-October 2023. Emily R. Klein, Ph.D., clinical psychologist and writer in Boston. The patient who made me question everything. In my final year of training to be a psychologist, I was assigned a challenging case at a clinic for young people experiencing psychoses. And you wonder where the story, my personal story, came from. Jack was on a mental health leave from college. He wouldn't eat, bathe, or see his friends. His parents suspected that paranoid delusions consumed his mind. Jack came to see me twice. He seemed hesitant, but I thought we were making slow progress at getting to know each other and building trust. Then he missed a session the next week, he no showed again. This time, his dad surprised me by coming in Jack's place. He won't come, the father said. He doesn't want to talk to you. I just wanted to say thank you for trying. Years of classes and supervised practice had prepared me to work with Jack and help him understand his emotions, thoughts, and behaviors. But he did not want to talk to me. Jack's father knew that his son needed to meet with a therapist. He had spent months waiting for a spot to open at the clinic, but he couldn't force his son to come. Psychologists know a lot about how to talk to people who are struggling with ambivalence about their behaviors. Decades of research have shown that when we use a practice called motivational interviewing, People are much more open to making positive changes, but in that moment, I couldn't use my skills because I didn't have access to the person at the center of everyone's concern. I had access only to his father, but then an idea took root. Jack's dad might be able to use motivational interviewing to talk to Jack about attending therapy. Even under the best circumstances, a therapist only sees a young patient for 50 minutes once a week. The other six days and 23 hours, they're primarily with friends or family members, often parents who do the heavy lifting of encouraging their loved one to engage in the activities that make recovery possible. I felt helpless because I couldn't talk to Jack, yet his dad was with him all the time. Since that fateful session eight years ago, I created a brief coaching program so parents and others could learn to use motivational interviewing with the young person in their life. I enrolled 130 families in studies to test the effects and found that they were grateful to learn these skills and able to use them right away. Families that got the training experience significantly reduced conflict and burnout. Believe me, I want your kids to hear and accept your advice, but there's no, there are no magic words to get them to listen. Influence flows from relationship, which flows from respect. For kids to listen to you about stressful topics, you must convey curiosity about the person they're becoming interest in their perspective, confidence in their judgment, and respect for their autonomy. That can be done through reflective listening, asking questions, and offering advice thoughtfully and sparingly. If a teen says, I hate school, our instinct is to rush in with reassurance, but you are so good at math or solutions. Let's meet with the principal and discuss dropping a course. But we can be much more effective by reflecting on what we hear. School has been tough for you lately. Or eliciting more information. What makes you say that? The better we understand our teens, the more helpful our advice will be. Sometimes they don't even need advice or intervention. A calm, non-judgmental sounding board is enough for them to feel better or problem solve on their own. Emily R Klein, PhD, a clinical psychologist and writer in Boston. The article, Psychology Today, October-September-October 2023, The patient who made me question everything. An idea took root. I felt helpless because I couldn't talk to Jack, yet his dad was with him all the time. So what does this have to do with psychosis? <laughs> Or me being psychotic. I don't know that I was psychotic. I do believe that as much the article began with that reference to Jack, who was obviously, and psychosis I should say, I should define, includes misperceptions known as hallucinations, could be representative of any of the five senses, touch, taste, feel, sight, sound. Uh, But also, in those misperceptions, putting all the facts together in a way of truth and then drawing a conclusion from them that would then be identified as delusional, hallucinations and or delusions. And with that is the basis of psychoses. Now, misperceptions (laughs) could easily happen to any of us. Um, There are those that as a result of sleep deprivation, such as I think happened to me, altered my state of being in such a way that whether I was awake or asleep when I saw it snowing in the car, Nonetheless, I was able to remember it, I reported upon it, and I had come to the conclusions at that age, yes, indeed, not only was it snowing outside, but it was indeed possible for it to snow in the car. Now, the challenge to (laughs) the faulty truth that my misperceptions brought me to was that everybody that was in the car went, he said, no, it didn't. And as I mentioned earlier, I've spent a lifetime as a bit of nostalgic humor. (laughs) The the brunt of that, uh, the subject, the source of that. And I'm okay with that. It brings the family together. It causes us, my father being again deceased, but it brought the family together and we had a chance to reflect and think about all those things. And even in his passing, it brings us fond memories. And I'm okay with that. I've come to live that down, at least in my own mind. Yet, I do believe it helps us when we think of things in that way to understand truth is a construct. It's based on facts, but facts are in basis themselves. Perceptions. And perceptions are tied to stimuli <laughs> or intake of stimuli to whatever sense we may be identifying. If it's tactile, then there's a risk that those facts are that in that misperception sort of way, may produce a fact, and as we then proceed in a quite normal way to interpret it, we might then see it as a truth that really has no reality basis. Those would be the easiest ones to correct, <laughs> those in substance induced states of psychoses. And even more these days, this is just how kind of normal the whole experience could possibly be, individuals like to take hallucinogens uh, to form some altered state of awareness or consciousness, and with that, enjoy completely new ways of not only registering reality, but putting together constructs or breaking down other constructs so that they might see in a unique and different way that is creative. And when they do come back to a more normal reference and a more sort of elemental sense of truth, they can take that new perspective and maybe do some things with it to help them, if they should want to, change the way that they look at the world and directly so then how they live their life it seems in that way a very positive experience and can be very helpful because that's really how psychotherapy goes but when you do that in that measure or way or whether where there is possibly then a chemical imbalance in a person That causes faulty perceptions, it's very difficult to say that that is entirely corrupting then of fact finding and formation of truth. It just means that because the facts, the perceptions are distorted, then to make proper accounting for or create proper narrative to account for the facts, even albeit they're different from people that share that common dimension of what we're really speaking of here, reality, you have to do some kind of rationalization, justification. If everything were so easy as to just say no, that's not true, and this is reality, and this is then it maybe wouldn't be so disturbing. But Sometimes the chemical imbalances, the problems are genetically, the person being genetically predisposed or genetically sort of directed and it's much more difficult. You can do some correction on that level of chemical imbalance, body's operations, intervention there with medicines and can help with that. Sometimes it's also a subject to or a product of trauma, uh, bad experiences, fight or flight. Uh, In a moment of terror, it's very difficult to rightly always bring all the senses together. It's very difficult for the fact of flashbacks or reliving the trauma. A lot of times people don't want to go back and debrief it or talk about it again. They just want to run from it. It does, in that way, leave that work a bit undone and can have, then, the potential for profound profound impact, disassociation. We all live in the realm of some denial. The greatest nemesis to truth is that denial is a selective choice to omit certain pieces of data because they are threatening and we don't know what to do with them and we're not ready to face them and... The more we run from it, the more we create justifications or rationalizations, narratives, alter the truth so that there's not too much dissonance. And though there may be a great deal of dissonance with in the context of a shared experience with people who have gone through it with us, even then they may be subject to the same. And it's a defense. These are all defense mechanisms, defense strategy or strategies of self-protection. Why would you go back, and even if somebody's going through it with you, uh, why would you go back if you're easily triggered or continue to be triggered by that and open all that up? Because if it's not subject to at least some sense of reality testing, some sense of what truth is, then those distortions can be not only minor, represent minor corruptions, of data or requiring a bit of correction if it's just a sensory experience sensation sensory input but it could with the whole within the whole dimension of PTSD reflect a lifetime of avoidance being easily triggered and misperception now paranoia is delusion <laughs> It is what we've come to define as or explain, give evidence of example or with example of delusion, mistrust of not only certain individuals, but everything in general. Someone's out to harm me. Something's out to harm me. I'm going to be harmed There's a bit of fatalism that gets flavored in, if not a great deal. There's some element, a little lesser grade cynicism that kind of goes into that. Uh, Again, just simply saying mistrust doesn't capture the fullness, the extreme of paranoia. But if paranoia is the end of the extreme, and all of that may have some realistic tangible sort of root in reality, then it could just be hypervigilance, which means somebody somewhere at some point either intentionally harmed you or randomly so, spuriously so, concomitantly, just superstitiously, two things kind of connected in some sort of spurious way to couple A really bad event where you're in such the fight or flight or terror mode that you never really got a chance to fully incorporate the picture, and then you don't go back ever to sort of test it, your perception. And then are left, as described a few moments ago, to be triggered the rest of your life because. The defense is really to pretend like it's not there, deny it, or to disconnect such memories. But it can become part of even so your personality. And hypervigilance as associated with trauma is not psychosis. You have a right to be hypervigilant. There was legitimately, genuinely a threat. You just may not have seen it all that clearly. And with that then may need some adjustment to understand, even if you saw the most obvious signs of it, facts of it, clearly, how you've put it together. You may not know all the data. You may not know all the dynamic. You may only be able to, again, conceptualize a limited portion of that. There may be all kinds of reasons and causes that are beyond your sensory input or in that awareness so, psychotherapy can help with that to clean that up, even if it's not psychotic or psychoses, by paying attention, <laughs> by listening, by participating in the conclusion, the truth that the person has come to. Now, you might say, well, I can agree with that as long as it's not psychoses, it's not delusional, it's not so out of touch to the extreme with reality that they're talking about monsters under their beds, snowing in the car, Uh, someone's out to poison me, I've been poisoned, somebody's put some chip or some transmitter and inside of me when I was sleeping I've had an anal probe. (laughs) Where did that come from? From alien abduction and then all of that and I can't say that that didn't happen (laughs) but it's out of the context of most of our normal experience And what might have been perceived as an anal probe could have been a lot of other intrusive things, including abuse and assault, making no light of that. But because of disassociation and denial, people are left to construct that in some manner or way that they do have an experience with. On the day that I saw it snow in the car, it was snowing outside. So it was a reference that was quite real and and had a common dimension of shared reality, I just took it a little far, (laughs) further than the rest. But in that same sort of way, um, those kind of experiences coupled with trauma, they can be corrected. But what's to say that isn't the source of delusional thinking or combined with some measure of chemical imbalance and maybe that's artificially contrived. Maybe the trauma itself created such the threat and then the disconnect or had such a dramatic impact or reliving it as with flashback would have such a dramatic significant effect on even biochemistry that it would alter one's Perception, or leave one to not challenge an altered state of perception or state of reality. Much like, again, bad trips on drugs, hallucinogens. And the correction can be made. So I'm not sure psychoses at times could be anything more than an artificial construct or if it's anything that is legitimate as we tied to truth and reality as we know it to be maybe again it's just extreme but whether it is biochemically based experientially based whether sometimes people like to live in fantasies consciously more consciously than maybe they're even willing to admit because it's easier an altered state of reality. Go ask somebody who plays video games, RPGs, immerses immerses themselves in it, such, and does not want to leave it. Does not want to turn it off. Goes to movies. Um, creates a false narrative, a false reality. It's a choice. But lest we get lost in the unknowable as to whether this is conscious, subconscious, biochemically based, really in that disease model sort of way, genetics, a matter of genetics, maybe psychosocially, culturally, if you have an intact or relatively speaking intact family and there's the genetics, then that's going to be reflected in the culture. And socialization is going to then capture enough of that distortion to continue to reinforce the misperceptions or at least the misidentification of that input along the lines of maybe hypervigilance, paranoia. That certainly would also include, even if the family would not remain attacked, you may be attracted to individuals who have similar psychosocial or cultural sort of uh, upbringing because there's a common dimension of familiarity. I've heard that before. Your family did that too? Now, if the psychotherapist, for the sake of helping, has to forego so much of the culturalization that they could be all things to whomever they need to be, along the lines of what they need them to be for the sake of helping them, that's not bad. And even if that would then have some inclination to bring them back to a more culturally appropriate, sociologically based, socially social system appropriate, sociologically so, social system based sort of context of community, that's not too bad. But to invalidate a person never works. Motivational interviewing is really just that. It's validation. It's a lot of five questions, sort of stuff, who, what, when, where, and how. It's tell me more about it. It's not rushing in and saying, oh, you're wrong. But I would want to say this in equally convicted way. You can never go wrong by listening. You can never go wrong by validating. If you need to become what the person needs you to become so that you might have relationship or rapport with that individual so that they would not feel invalidated, disqualified, told they're crazy, put you in the category of those that the hypervigilance has warned them they need to be careful of, or even so graduated to the point of some paranoia with chemical assists or not. You don't want to go there if you're helping someone. Parents don't want to go there if they're trying to validate their child. It's a good tool. We shouldn't do that with anyone. That's where the respect comes in. That's where we should, as with what we do psychological counseling, what I do for a profession, I should encourage others to do the same. You could call it motivational interviewing. There's all sorts of different theories that appeal to thoughts and feelings, some more so, some less so. Behaviors, conditions, conditioning, habits, customs, socialization, cognitive development, psychosocial, all those things. But the one thing that ties all of that together I think universally, no matter your theoretical persuasion, including motivational interviewing, the use thereof of motivational interviewing, is that you need to validate the other person for the sake of the relationship. You don't have to tell them they're right. You just have to not discount, disqualify their perceptions or their truths too quickly. Genuine positive regard is what Carl Rogers called it. Active listening, paraphrasing. Which is just repeating back for the sake of validating, but it's also the person, but it's also then directly connected to rapport. Once you establish trust in the relationship... Once a person takes you off the list of don't sees and puts you on the list of sees, takes you off the list of those who are out to harm them, and sees you as an ally, takes you off the list of those individuals who are constantly telling them, "How could you think that way?" And may even, as my family did, kind of jest a bit about it. Fortunately, I'm not psychotic. They didn't commit an unpardonable sin or something that harmed me for life, although it may sound like that today. I did not think about that until I read this article. Had not for a long time thought about that because we don't get together so much in that way anymore. And we don't do that journey through nostalgia, at least collectively like we used to. those individuals who are in either some state or mode of hypervigilance or who have some trauma reaction, maybe have a biochemical basis for their hallucinations, misperceptions, or with that, then how they put them together. Maybe it really isn't that how they put them together is wrong. Maybe it's just that they have no ability to challenge that reality because their perceptions constantly are out of alignment with what it takes to rationalize or to create a truth with some integrity, not dissonance. But should it be that it's all biochemical? Should it be that it's a disease model? Should it be that medicine helps? It still assists to validate the person and not argue with them. Arguing won't get any good thing as a result, except maybe more (laughs) defense, self-protection, and maybe some aggressive hostile behavior. (laughs) And if you push someone who is delusional and paranoid too far, and they go too far with whatever ability they have to separate you from all of those individuals that are looking to abduct and harm them, then you might find that Back directly to a risk or threat of your own life. Why would you want to do that? Whether it's as a psychotherapist, psychological counseling, any healthcare provider, parent, spouse, teacher, anyone that anyone that has neighbors, uh, friends, uh, we can all possibly admit that at times we're definitely prone to or have been prone to hypervigilance. All of us probably have some hypervigilance sort of experience. Watching a scary movie makes you a bit hypervigilant when you leave the theater or go outside. Or if you're the only one at home and you walk through whatever portion of the house is still dark and you can't get to the light, you could have creatures jumping out from everywhere. You could have aliens landing on the planet and abducting you and doing (laughs) anal probes, not to mention other sorts of procedures. But to not make light of those things, but to understand there's something going on, but you're only going to find out about it and hopefully find whatever the truth is that needs a bit of correction or at least some assistance in helping the person realize they're not in such the imminent state of threat that to keep the norepinephrine and adrenaline level so high as to drive the hypervigilance and or extend that to paranoia, you have to help them calm down a bit or at least feel secure or at least feel accepted. And I think that's where we really need to focus Our attention is universally, that's good, no matter who you are and what you're doing, as long as it involves other people. So whether you do this thing at home, motivational interviewing, as with the author, and her putting together this plan to empower parents, and they're the ones that are with you all the time, or the person all the time, or whether it's that 50, it's really 53 minutes, psychotherapy session that you do once a week in the somewhat alien confines of of my spaceship, so to speak, or my exam table or my office. I hope it's never perceived as a probe of of your mind or whatever else. The idea, though, is, is that we should be supportive, lead with that, encouraging, We'll get a lot more traction. Things will go a lot better. We can learn from new perspectives. Again, just ask anyone who is going to take psychedelics for the sake of changing the personality. That's what it's all about. Hallucinations and delusions, altered state of consciousness and awareness isn't evil in and of itself. It actually kind of makes the person a bit more malleable to (laughs) reconstruction. Tearing it down and building it back up as long as they feel safe and secure, not only during the trip, but during the debriefing that follows the trip. That really is also a central element of all of this is that's what we do. In addition to offer guidance and direction from the evidence-based research and studies that we have access to and the knowledge base and the training, as to helping you to be more adaptive in life, acquiring certain skill sets, putting yourself in better situations, making decisions, turning off the fight or flight, <laughs> just removing the threat. But if we do our job properly as a psychotherapist, then you'll feel safe. And with that, you'll be able to have a trusting relationship And with that, you'll be able to talk through things. And with that, you'll be able to hopefully see things a bit differently, all without having to use psychedelics, necessarily, and hopefully without triggering more paranoia. I'm not wanting to be the enemy, (laughs) I don't want to be whatever it is that you might have projected all your fears upon. I do not want to be that individual, the evil one. I want to help you. And if I do it honorably, with respect, if I do it understanding that you have a story to tell me, even though I'm having a bit of difficulty translating it to my reality, it nonetheless is yours and there is a truth at the bottom of all of that so to speak that i want to get at about who you are did you receive love were you abused were you harmed is there some way we can help your autoimmune immunological system to function better and maybe do some biochemical changes without the aid of medicine if not then with medicine can we help That's why we do the podcast, once again, I always like to say it that way, because it's information, but hopefully it helps you to understand it can be and should be, and if it's not, it's not good, a safe place for you to open up. And if you can share that reality with the people that matter the most to you, family, those that are with you all the time, as the article in Psychology Today presented it, then do that bring them in we'll do that do that if you're the family member adopt an attitude of validation not invalidation should you enjoy the podcast though and the best attempt to communicate that to you and help you understand what that's all about so you can do some of these things that are quite legal and ethical at home (laughs) just be nice to one another you're always welcome to come back and join me for the next podcast of Word with Dr. Michael David Clay, Dave Clay. And uh, you can catch us weekly on whatever platform, podcast platform, that you choose to use to find us in the first place. We drop a new podcast, a new episode, once a week. You can also contact us at 304 523 Word, W O R D, 9673. You can email me at drndclay at thewordhouse.com. You can go to thewordhouse.com. And with that, I think that's all. (laughs) We are, no, we are also on Facebook and you can find us on YouTube. So, you have no reason to not reach out. Should you want to find a therapist, remember the directory in psychology today. Again, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. I want to invite you back once more and sincerely thank you for participating in this and hopefully sharing this with the people that you know that you think might help. And I want to wish you the best, as a final note, of not only good wellness, health, wellness, but also behavioral health, mind health, and wellness. And they go hand in hand. Looking forward to meeting again. Thanks.